Our scripture lesson for this morning will be John chapter 10, uh, looking at verses 22 through 42. Uh, If you're using one of the Blue Church Bibles, you'll find that on page 896. Give you a second. John chapter 10, starting at verse 22. It reads, At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long would you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which one of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it, is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, But he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Our Lord, we do thank you once again for your mighty word. We thank you for its power, but we also thank you for its clarity. So this morning, Lord, we do ask that you would add your blessing to the reading, hearing, and the preaching of your word. Be with us, Holy Spirit. Open our minds to the beauty of your scriptures. In the name of Christ, amen. Amen. So uh, last night, if you had a chance, you were at the baseball game. Uh, Yesterday, me, myself, uh, Tom and Mike kind of had a running joke last night that uh, after the game, but the game was kind of late, that the running joke for the night was that uh, when the game was over and I got home, that I was going to start working on my sermon. <laughs> now, I, I, I say this because I realize the introduction to the sermon is honestly going to sound like I just did this last night. It's actually really bad, but it's going to make a point. But, you know, it kind of worked out that that was that was the joke of the night, which is oh, I'm going to go home and go start on the sermon. But here, here's, the, here's the terrible introduction that you're going to have to hear anyway, because I didn't change it, no matter how bad it is. Is that a, a good sandwich, a, a good sandwich includes good bread. 
You pick the wrong bread for a good sandwich. It kind of destroys the sandwich. Uh, Now, I know everybody probably has their own version of what a good sandwich is or what a good bread is, but for me personally, a good, solid peanut butter and and jelly sandwich should not go on multigrain bread. All the seeds and nuts shouldn't go together. I already have nuts and seeds and stuff in the peanut butter. I shouldn't have it in the bread. It messes up the sandwich. You need a good slice of bread for a really, really good sandwich. I I say all that to say that in the Gospels, uh, now I I stole this from my uh, New Testament professor, uh, Professor Glodel, but the Gospel writers are very, obviously very skilled writers, and their stories, they make them into sandwiches at times. Now, there's, there's clearly a more technical term than sandwich uh, for how the gospel writers write their stories, uh, but I just refuse to go through uh, notes from like 10 years ago, so I'll just use sandwich. But they, they, they layer their stories in a way where there's something happens, there's the meat of the story, which everyone you know, goes right to because that's the more important part, at least the way you read it, and then there's another piece that seems vastly unimportant. But They put it that way because those, just like in a sandwich, those two slices of bread are just as important. And they say a lot about the story that you'll wind up reading just as much as the meat of the story. In our verses uh, for this morning, we have what I would say two settings or two slices of bread at the beginning of our verses and at the end of our verses that seem kind of inconsequential, but they are important. They are two settings that say much. Uh, but also add to the story of the meat of the story. So the first setting, shall we say, of the verses that we look through is this uh, episode where Jesus is walking around during the Feast of Dedication, and he's walking around the temple. This setting, I think, comes with a lot of irony of how this is all set up before this great argument ensues between Jesus and the religious leaders. The first irony, at least I think, in this very simple setting of Jesus walking around the temple during the Feast of Dedication, the, the last thing we heard about Jesus in the Gospel stories is this argument uh, that the religious leaders and the crowd or the peoples are having about Jesus. And the question is, Jesus must have a demon. This guy must have a, a demon. And then the next thing we hear about this gentleman with a demon, Jesus, is that a demon is walking around in the temple during the Feast of Dedication. I don't know about you, but I'm assuming demons are probably not looking to hang around in the temple. There's a great irony that the writer puts there. Does Jesus have a demon? Well, he's walking around in the temple during the Feast of Dedication. I don't think he has a demon. The second irony I think I see in this simple setting is that Jesus is there, during the Feast of Dedication. Now, we may not know what the Feast of Dedication is, but you'll know this word, Hanukkah. We know the celebration of Hanukkah that happens around Christmas. This is the celebration. Now, this is not a celebration that would have been in the Torah. This was a celebration that was added later, actually uh, during the intertestamental period. Uh, this was a celebration of uh, Jacob, no, sorry, Judas. Judas Maccabeus, uh, he overthrew the Syrians and essentially got the temple back from the enemies. He reclaimed the temple, overthrew God's enemies, and part of the celebration of Hanukkah, or the Feast of Dedication, is that they would light the candle in commemoration of the light of redemption. So what's the irony? The true temple is walking around the temple. 
the true one who brings redemption and who truly conquers is hanging around the temple during the Feast of Dedication. The third irony I see is this, that the true temple is walking around and the religious leaders want to have an argument with the Son of God. The first setting, I think, is important. The first setting is that here is Jesus in the temple, the Son of God, the Messiah, and the religious leaders want to have an argument with God. And they ask him, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus' response is very simple. I already told you, the reason you don't believe me is because you're not one of my sheep. But here's what I think Jesus is basically saying to them. This is basically the title of my sermon, why I titled, titled it this way. Is that basically what Jesus is going to argue back to the religious leaders as they are arguing with him and asking this question, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Who are you? He's basically going to tell them, you have the responsibility, and that responsibility falls on everybody else, including everybody in this room. You are all called to believe what I say about myself, and you're all called to believe the works that I do. Believe what I say about myself. And believe the works that you've seen me do. I'm going to borrow from a commentator that I think helps kind of organize what Jesus says about himself and the controversy that ensues between Jesus and the religious leaders. And he says that there's almost like a level of controversy that keeps building up. Jesus basically says about himself, particularly when we get to verse 30, when he says, I and the Father are one. I think this is the linchpin in the argument This is what really gets them all riled up. But there's levels of controversy. And so on one hand, as this commentator says, and like I said, I'm borrowing from him, the commentator basically says, on one level, there's the controversy of Jesus, or the Son, sharing the desire of the Father. In other words, if Jesus was just simply saying about himself, I'm the Son, and I share the same desire or the wills of the Father, I want the sheep to be protected. I want the sheep to be cared for, and so does my father. On one hand, that's one level of controversy, but that doesn't equal a stoning. That's a very low level level of controversy. Then he says maybe there's a second level of controversy, is that the son shares in the father's power. As Jesus says, no one can snatch the sheep out of my hand, just like no one can snatch the sheep out of the Father's hand. This may be a word of Jesus' power, but that it's a little worse than just sharing in his desire and will, but it might not be controversial enough to want to stone him and kill him. Think about the Old Testament prophets. There were times when the Old Testament prophets would, if you want to say it this way, share in Yahweh's power. God would give sometimes the prophet to raise people from the dead or heal people. And so sometimes you can say that a prophet would share in the divine power. And so the religious leaders, they may have heard this and go, well, that it's controversial, but it's not stone worthy. Then the commentator says, but there is the third level of controversy that Jesus is saying, and this is what makes the religious leaders want to stone him to death. It's verse 30. It's not only that the Son and the Father share a desire or a will. It's not only that the Son and the Father uh, share in power to some degree. 
But the third level of controversy, the one that causes the religious leaders to want to stone him, is when Jesus says, I and the Father are one. We will have to get slightly technical because it's a short verse that says a whole lot. It's a short few words. It's clear, as we look at the Father and the Son, that the Father and the Son are clearly two distinct persons. They're not the same person. Jesus talks about the Father as if he is someone else. He's a distinct person, and even if you look at the language, they are both singular masculine words. So, technicality one, the Father and the Son are two distinct persons. But Jesus says that the Father and the Son, two distinct persons, are one. Father and Son, singular masculine. Are one is neuter. There's no gender to the word one or are. And so another way to say this, if we were to put it in a more crass language, what Jesus is saying is that the Son and the Father, or coming from Jesus' mouth, I and the Father are one thing. Or even more crass, I and the Father are made up of the same stuff. The Nicene Creed, I think, makes it very clear, and I'll, I'll go with people who are vastly more wise than me, and we've been saying this for years in the church, the Nicene Creed would put it this way, and I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. Jesus is making very clear to the religious leaders, I'm in the Father, the Father is in me, I and the Father are one, we are distinct in persons, yet we're made of the same stuff, substance, for we are both divine. Jesus is clear in what he's saying about himself, and this obviously is a reason the religious leaders want to stone him. But Jesus continues, as we go past the technical language of verse 30, Jesus, if you want to say, backs up his own argument by using the words of the Old Testament, particularly Psalm 82, when he asked the religious leaders, I know you're going to have a problem with what I just said, but let me add more. Jesus says, you say in your scriptures. Now, when Jesus says it this way, we know that he's about to say something negative toward the religious leaders. He's kind of making a point. He, even you can say to a certain degree, he's being sarcastic and by calling it your scriptures when he's talking about the religious leaders. Clearly, it's the same scriptures that Jesus read, but he wants to put to them, you read the scriptures all the time, so explain this to me. I, uh, I kind of I chuckled a little bit when I read it, when Jesus says your scriptures, as if he's not reading it. And the reason I kind of chuckled a little bit, because in all honesty, this is the way me and my brother talk about uh, family members when we have a problem with them for the day. So, and I, I use my grandmother because no one's ever mad at, at grandma. So I can't use other names because, you know, somebody might be listening and might be upset by what I say. So if, if, if I call my brother and I say, and like I said, this, is, this never happens to, to my grandmother. But if I call and I say, yeah, I just talked to your grandmother. That indicates to my brother that I'm about to say something negative about my grandmother, because at that moment, she doesn't belong to me. She's your grandmother. This is what Jesus is basically saying 
to the religious leaders. You think you know the scriptures so well? Let's look at your scriptures and see what it says. And so Jesus looks at Psalm 82. He brings it up and he says, in Psalm 82, you are okay with calling mere men gods. Psalm 82, the quote-unquote gods that are talked about are either, I would say, either princes or judges. Uh, But nonetheless, in Psalm 82, those men, to some degree, are called gods. Well, why? Because they're their judgments are final and what they do if they're princes their ruling is final there's a certain type of you can say sovereignty that princes and judges have and so in the psalm they call princes and judges men of astute shall you say who are in charge of kingdoms he calls those men god so jesus basically asked them you're already okay with calling men god so why do you have a problem about me saying I'm the son of God. Really quick, in my reflection, I try to make a contemporary application. I won't read it, obviously, because that will take too long, but my essential point is this. The contemporary application to all this is we live in a world where people really don't have an issue with calling other men gods. If you, Depending on who you talk to, who you speak to, the kind of crowd you're around, etc., You've probably heard like super spiritual in the worst way, but super spiritual people say things like, well, we're all gods. Or the God is in all of us. God is in all things. So the contemporary application is even today, we don't have an issue with calling people gods or acting like we're gods. Even those who don't believe in any gods at all behave in autonomous ways as if nobody else has any ruling over their life, essentially by saying, I'm God, I do what I want. Jesus is basically saying to these religious leaders, you don't have an issue with calling men God. So what's your problem with me by calling myself the son of God? Jesus continues and he basically answers their original question. And the religious leaders ask, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? In verse 36, Jesus says, you have a problem with the one that has been consecrated and sent into the world being called the son of God. Those Those two words, those two phrases, shall I say, together, the one consecrated is the idea of one being anointed and set aside. The one being sent into the world is this special special servant of God, obviously the Son of God who's sent in the world for redemption. Jesus is basically telling them, I am the Messiah. And yet you have a problem with calling the Messiah and the Son of God, God. Jesus says all this, and the religious leaders, they attempt to stone him. To a certain degree, they have the right. Leviticus 24 says that anyone who blasphemes against God shall be put to death. So to a certain degree, the religious leaders, because they are not his sheep, and they don't hear the shepherd's voice rightly, they're following their law, And they attempt to stone him. But because he's God, he halts it all. And the stoning attempt fails. Either way, it is clear, in my opinion, that the religious leaders knew exactly what Jesus is saying. They are not unclear. They are not unsure what Jesus is saying about himself. The only reason 
They want to stone him because they know that you, a mere man, make yourself equal with God. I tell this another quick story. I apologize for all my stories, but I think they make a point. Uh, at one point, there was uh, some older neighbors of ours who were Jehovah Witness. And uh, once he found out that I had gone to seminary, he was very happy about meeting with me. So he said, let's I'm going to invite you over and we're going to have a meeting. So, uh, you know, unfortunately, in, in my head, I was thinking this was going to be some sort of like, you know, neighborly debate or like some friendly theological dis- discussion of some sort. You know, I have my opportunity to evangelize and share the gospel and correct his terrible theology and so forth. All that kind of stuff. I walk into his living room, and there's about six or seven Jehovah Witnesses with their Bibles open. So essentially, I got ambushed by Jehovah Witnesses, and I didn't expect this at all. So, but it's okay. So we, we wind up discussing. I stay there because at some point it was fun. And so I stay, and we go back and forth. We go back and forth about various things. I'm trying to poke holes, and, and they're, honestly, they're bad theology. And at some point, I get to a story like this. I didn't go to, technically to John 10. But I get to the point where I say, well, okay, you you don't agree with everything else I said. What about the religious leaders? They were clear. Why else would they want to stone Jesus unless they were clear that Jesus was clear in stating that he was indeed God from all eternity? And I remember the gentleman said to me, and at this point, I know apologetic conversations are not about winning or losing, but I, I think I won. Because his answer was this. Oh, Jared, it was just one big misunderstanding. I I, Honestly, I couldn't believe it. That the death and resurrection of Christ was just all one big misunderstanding. It's not a big misunderstanding. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. The religious leaders were vastly clear what he was saying about himself. He was saying to them, I am the son of God. I'm God from all eternity. As I wrote once again in my reflection, uh, I'm probably going to say it different the way it is because this is an alleged uh, comment by Mark Twain, but it's good nonetheless. Mark Twain once said, some people are troubled by the unclear passages of Scripture, but I am troubled by what is most clear. This is the clear stating that stands in front of all of us. Anytime we open up the Scriptures, anytime we think about the faith, Is Jesus the Son of God? Is he God from all eternity? Is he the Messiah or not? It's not unclear. Jesus wasn't unclear. The religious leaders knew he was not unclear. Therefore, the words that stand in front of us are not unclear either. So first of all, we are called, at least in the argument, we are called to believe in his word. We're called to believe in what Jesus says about himself. But then secondly, we are also called to believe in the works that he has done and is doing. Verse 37, 38, Jesus, what I would say is a gracious move on his behalf because he's already he's already gave his speech. He's already given his argument. He technically doesn't need to give anybody a second chance, but because God is gracious Jesus says to them, if you don't believe what I say, at least believe the works that you've seen me do. In the immediate context, what are the works that Jesus is, uh, for the most part, talking about? In chapter 
9, starting in chapter 9 and chapter 10, I think Jesus is specifically talking about his healing of a man born blind. But also in context, at least literarily, what Pastor Chris will talk about next week is the great miracle of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. If you don't believe what I said, believe these two great works that are near you. It's interesting that the two things that are said about these two great miracles that are connected or at least close to the words that Jesus is saying about himself, the line that's given about the man who was born blind and healed, the people say, well, no one has healed a man who was born blind. It's this great uh, exclamation point that comes with it. This is, this is unreal. Well, what does Martha say about Lazarus? No one has raised a man who's been dead for four days. Jesus is telling the religious leaders and telling us, the readers, if you don't believe what I say, look at the works I've been doing. These works, these miracles are things that even for the people of the day have never even seen before. Something about this man walking around the temple has different. Even more, not just the miracles and the works that he's done that's immediate to, the, to our context for the verses right now. But if we look through the Gospel of John, just other Gospels in general, we have the miracle at the wedding of Cana. We have Jesus turning water into wine. We have Jesus' various miracles of healing. Jesus feeding the 5,000 with a small little lunch. We have Jesus walking on the water as God over creation. Not only that, because we read the whole thing, we have the great resurrection of Christ himself. We don't believe what he says about himself. At the very least, we are called to look at the works he did and believe. Jesus says, if you don't believe my, my words... Believe my works. For even my works essentially testify about all the stuff I've been saying. We have the setting, the first setting. We have this argument that ensues where Jesus says, believe my word and my works. And then lastly, we have, shall we say, the last slice of bread, the second setting. That ties up uh, everything in these verses. Starting around verse 39, we see that the final arrest, they tried to stone him already, but this final arrest of Jesus once again comes to nothing and fails. In the Gospel of John, this will actually be the last time for quite a period. This will be the last time that the religious leaders and others will attempt to arrest and kill Jesus. We won't hear about this again until much later. There's going to come a point in the story of John and every gospel where the religious leaders are finally successful, successful excuse me, at arresting him and killing him. They're successful. Or are they? Jesus leaves from this area where the final arrest and death fails, and he it says he goes on to the other side of the river. And over there on this side of the river, these folks, in contrast to the religious leaders, they believe in him. 
If the first setting was full of irony, I think this second setting of our verses are filled with sarcasm. And I think it's a slap in the face to to the religious leaders. Because on one hand, Jesus goes on the other side to these folks that do believe in Jesus. But what's on the other side of the river? According to those who are scholars and smarter than me, they say that this side of the river that Jesus goes on, this was considered the despised side of the river. These were the, shall we say, since we were all in New Jersey, these are the country bumpkins, the folks that nobody likes. And, and these folks, more than just them being despised and being a bunch of bumpkins, probably even more important as a slap to the religious leaders, on their side of the river, they are not in proximity to the sophisticated teachings of the religious leaders. They're on the other side. And yet these despised bumpkins, they actually believe the, shall we say, partial preaching of John the Baptist, and they grasp and trust in Christ with his preaching. Remember, John the Baptist, obviously, he is murdered. He does not make it even to the death and resurrection of Christ. Even John the Baptist, before he dies, he's still kind of unsure about Jesus. Are you the Messiah? What is going on? So his, his preaching, shall we say, is to a certain degree partial. He hasn't seen it all, and so he can't preach it all. But the things he does know about Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, these bumpkins on the other side of the river who only hear partial preaching of John the Baptist believe in Jesus. And here the religious leaders are staring the Son of God straight in the face and they don't believe him at all. Slap in the face to the religious leaders. Sophisticated. Full of truth. Arguing with the Son of God directly in his face. And they don't believe. And the despised folks on the other side of the river. They hear partial preaching. And believe in Jesus. The religious leaders, at least the way I see it, I think the religious leaders, they're almost talked about in Pharaoh-like language. They get both God's word and they see his works and their hearts are hardened. I think this leads me to my final word to kind of tie this all up. This is the way I think I'll conclude our sermon. Let me first say a word of warning. And then a word of humble gratitude. Here's my warning. Don't get this close to Jesus and miss him. Don't hear over and over again the gospel message presented to you and miss it. In other words, don't stare Jesus in the face and argue with them, rather hear the gospel message and believe and receive him. Just in case you think that this is just for the unbeliever sitting next to you, to borrow from the writer of the Hebrews, don't be a part of the community of faith. Don't 
taste the heavenly gift. Don't be enlightened by the spirit to sound like a Presbyterian. Don't be washed in the waters of the word. And miss him. Hebrews and other places give us very strong warning. Don't be like the religious leaders. But instead, have humble gratitude. In the words of using various parts of the Gospel of John, in the words of John chapter 3, remember that those of us who hold on to Christ, the Spirit blows where He wants to. You aren't smarter than the rest, and that's why you trust in Christ. The Spirit blows where He desires. In the words of John chapter 10, the verses of the day, and from last Sunday, all of us who trust in Christ, we're just simple sheep. We're not that great. We're just simple sheep who hear the shepherd's voice and we respond. We are simple sheep who are provided for, cared for, held on to, protected for all eternity by our good shepherd. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are indeed our good shepherd. We praise you that even when we tried to argue with you, the work of your spirit worked well enough to break our hard hearts and give us a heart of flesh that we may trust in you. We praise you for your great salvation. We praise you that life is eternal for us because you give it to us. We praise you, our great God. Amen. Amen. Let us now.